All right, everyone. Welcome to episode 72 of F-Stop Collaborate and Listen. And special thanks goes out to Michael Howard, Chris Rice, Eric Stensland, Perry Shalat, and Jack Curran for continuing to help produce the podcast with their generous support um, at the $20 and above level on Patreon. Thank you so much. This podcast is for you guys, the listener. Um, this week's guest is uh, Scotty Perkins. Man, we had a great time talking about uh, amateur radio, wilderness first aid, um, crazy incidents in the wilderness as landscape photographers. And I think you'll appreciate his passion and enthusiasm for um, for amateur radio and and its role it can play in helping us stay safe out there in the in the wilderness while we're out taking photos. So. Um, appreciate all the feedback I'm getting about the podcast. I'm looking for a few ideas on a, maybe a controversial topic that we could do a debate on. So hit me up on social media, uh, Matt Payne Photo or Matt Payne Photography. Thanks for tuning in. Sweet. Well, man, Scotty Perkins, it's awesome to have you on F-Stop, collaborate and listen. Very nice to be on. Thanks for the invitation. Absolutely. I'm, uh, I'm enjoying your... Uh, your 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 jazz radio station voice already it's kind of tantalizing <laughs> very nice <laughs> so um i think a few people have recommended you but you um i'm re- i was really intrigued uh, by some of the thoughts that you had about why you wanted to come on the podcast and some of the topics that you're kind of into right now um but before we jump into those um i just wanted to uh I wanted to ask, um, what is it like to have so many awesome, famous landscape photography friends? It is absolutely fabulous. (laughs) No, in all seriousness. So I've had the benefit in my life of being in a lot of different orbits. And I will say, having gotten into landscape photography relatively late in my life, um, the landscape photography community is just an awesome group of folks. And really top to bottom, I mean, every, every cohort has its personalities, but, um, I will say that the, on balance, there's just an incredibly high quality, um, baseline level of people. And, you know, when you go and you get to a relatively popular place at a relatively time, popular time of year, and you find a bunch of shooters around and you get together, uh, it's just a really chill and interesting conversation set generally in my experience very little drama and just fun to hang around that group and you know certainly just the baseline level of creativity that you find um in that community this community is just fantastic and i'm i'm grateful to be a peripheral part of it yeah no no doubt about it it's um i feel the same way especially uh with some of the people i've connected with here in colorado i mean i consider many of the people I've met through landscape photography to be some of my closer friends now. So it's, uh, yeah, man, it's, it's pretty cool to have this kind of, um, this craft that kind of bonds us all together. And I don't know about you, but one of the things I really enjoy about that is, uh, it, it kind of transcends, you know, political views and transcends race and ethnicity and all that stuff. Like it. I don't know. It's kind of like the greatest equalizer. I feel like I don't know if you have the same experience, but 
Oh, I absolutely do. And, and, um, you know, I, I, I don't find a lot of, uh, a lot of that type of drama and conversations as I find in other areas, you know, having, you know, living in Idaho and working in predominantly in Texas and, um, having worked predominantly in Silicon Valley, those, those, those Facebook orbits are, can, can collide pretty hard sometimes when certain conversations get going. But, uh, <laughs> from a landscape photography perspective, you know, you get out in the field and, and people are surrounded by, um, the things that we do and, and, uh, it, it's just, it, it's a great group uh, to you, to your point. And, um, it's always nice to learn from people and, and you'll run into, uh, specific talents from all walks of life. You have, um, from people who are, who are young and just getting started and started as creatives and, and are trying photography as their first career. And you have people that are getting into it late who have, you know, been high level practicing physicians or venture capitalists or other things. And they all get together, um, in a group and looking at the same scene and trying to make art and it's pretty fantastic. Yeah, absolutely. I, it's an exciting, exciting time to be among that, that field of people. And, um, especially this time of year, uh, in the fall for me is especially exciting because, uh, uh that's, I feel like that's when a lot of people kind of, uh, descend upon my part of Colorado and it's really cool to, uh, to meet up with old friends and, and connect with new friends and things like that. Uh, so yeah, man, it's, uh, I, I'm with you, man. I, I love being part of this group. I feel super lucky. And of course, through the podcast, it's, it's been great to just, um, open up the door and meet so many new people that I've just found to be really enjoyable. <laughs> yeah, completely agree. And, and thanks for doing what you do. It's, it, it is a great gathering place. You were hearing Sangita talk about the, um, about the Facebook group and, and I, I couldn't agree with more with what you guys had just been talking about with that respect and other Facebook groups where people collaborate and, and give each other some honest feedback and, um, get a chance to learn and grow and yeah. it's all very good stuff. Yeah, man. Well, let's, uh, let's get into the nitty gritty here, man. So, one of the uh, uh, one of the things I was really hoping to talk to you about um, was kind of related to your background. So you're you're an IT guy, but you're also a wilderness uh, EMT, and um, I know that you're like super into amateur ham radio, which I know absolutely nothing about uh, amateur radio. Um, in fact, like when you were telling me about it, I'm like what? <laughs> Cause you know, I do, I spend a lot of time in the wilderness. Um, you know, I know a lot about like spot devices and like, you know, in reach and all that stuff. But man, when you were telling me about the capabilities of these amateur radios, I was like, this is absolutely something that I think landscape photographers could get really into. So man, like take us away. Like, what is this all about? And I know you're kind of on a personal mission to, to get people more into this for their for their safety so like go for it man okay so uh, going back to what we were talking about when we introduced this is a pretty terrific group of people and and one of the things that i have a um an aspiration for within this community is that we um are helping each other look out for each other and you know, what we do is not without its risks. You know, we have, um, ourselves often going solo or sometimes in pairs or in groups, um, going into some, into some pretty deep country, um, and going into often deep water fig figuratively and literally. And, um, I had a couple of experiences, uh, living where I live in Idaho. For those of you who don't know, I live in, in Boise and, um, Boise is an interesting, 
uh, area geographically in that, you know, the cities are kind of around their periphery in order to get to Boise. We're in the very Southwest corner in Boise and Coeur Lanes up in the, up in the, and the Northern panhandle at the very top of the state. And uh, all of the roads and uh, all the highways are kind of skirting the edges of the state. And there's just, just wilderness in the middle. And it's really hard to get to places. And um, I had a, an experience a couple of years ago uh, driving back from shooting up in the in the Stanley area in the Sawtooth Wilderness, just at the edge of the Sawtooth National Recreation Area. And the road, if for the if you've ever driven up there, the road to get from Boise up into the Sawtooth, it takes about maybe two to two and a half hours to get up there uh, on a good day. In the winter, it can be um, a little longer than that because it's a you know, two lane highway, one lane, each direction, state highway, windy road, you know, typical speeds of you know, 35 to 40 miles an hour for, you know, hundred or so miles. And, um, when the, the weather's bad, uh, the weather, the road can be, um, pretty hard to, to, to navigate safely. And in fact, last season there was a big avalanche and most, much of the road was closed for a good part of the season. And, um, I was coming back from shooting in February and, you know, the sawtooth is, gets pretty cold. It can be, you know, well below zero, uh, many mornings. And, um, so I was driving back down state highway 21 and, um, I was, uh, it was about nine 30 or so at night. So really dark. It was February. And, um, I'm at that point, I'm guessing about 20 or so miles away from the nearest town, uh, driving down this highway. And all of a sudden my headlights light up a, a young woman and a boy standing on a minimal shoulder on the side of the road. And it, it, it is, it's 15 degrees outside. It's pitch black. Um, it's a miracle. I didn't, I didn't hit them. It was, I was alert paying attention. And, uh, so I slowed down and stopped and, and immediately noticed a couple of things. One is that they were just wearing sweatshirts. It's in the teens. Um, and the young boy is, is literally shivering and terrified. And, um, I asked her if she needed help and she was having a hard time articulating sentences. And, um, so I had enough um, general training and awareness to know there's nothing really I can do to force her. I could simply ask her, you know, do you need help? Can I give you a ride somewhere? Is there something I can do to help? Um, can I, can I give you clothing to wear? I didn't have much extra of my own to leave with them. Um, and she absolutely flat out refused any, any Mm. assistance. Um, and young boy didn't say anything. So I, I made a runtime decision at the point, which I still think was the right one. Uh, which was just to hammer as fast as I could to get to the nearest place where there was cell signal. And at this, in this area of the state, um, you're, you get, you know, a couple of bars only in the towns. So you can drive for two hours between towns um, and not get any cell signal at all. And you're deep in canyons where even satellite phones are not necessarily mm-hmm, very effective mm-hmm. um, or spot devices. So your communication options are really limited. And I did not have, Uh, any real knowledge of what I should have been doing differently for communication at that time. But so I dropped the hammer on my truck and drove as fast as I could to find a payphone or a landline in these towns. And, uh, by the, there weren't any, any landlines available. Uh, I, I drove by a hotel and there was literally no landlines in any (laughs) of the rooms in the hotel. There were guests, but no, no phones. Um, 
So I kept on going back to the nearest town where I could get cell signal. It was 43 miles away. Uh, And so um, immediately called the sheriff's department and let them know what was going on. They said, thanks for the call and I'll, we'll get out there as quickly as we can. Um, And, um, you know, in retrospect, maybe should I just have stayed with them for some period of time, but I had no idea how long we were going to be out there. And, and, um, you know, it, it was just a very, very strange situation. So I made the judgment call to go in and try and get them help as quickly as I could. Um, as it turned out about 10 minutes after I made the call, got in touch with the sheriff's department and kept driving in the other direction Two um, sheriff's deputies passed me in the other direction about 10 minutes later. So they were a full mm-hmm. 60 miles lights and sirens away from where those two were. And they were the closest law enforcement um, sworn to helping them in whatever predicament wow. they were in. And so it was a pretty scary thing. And so, uh, you know, could I, have, are there other things I could have done in retrospect? Probably. Um, what the decision that I made at that point was that I felt under, underprepared in a couple of different ways. Number one, I felt underprepared because I couldn't, there wasn't any way that I had to communicate with the outside world from that spot. And so I'd started to investigate how could I make, how could I engage in emerging emergency communications right now? If I had to, what are my options? Because that could be me. I was literally driving next to, um, a, a 15 foot Creek where if I had slid off the side of the road and flipped my truck over as many people have done in that part of the state many times, I could, I could be in my vehicle underwater trying to get out and not have any mechanism of talking to anybody. Um, and I'd be completely on my own, um, both from a communication standpoint and medically. So I made the decision, I'm going to figure out how, if I were in the situation again, I would be able to communicate with the authorities because I knew that they existed. I just didn't know what they were. And then, so that was thing one. And thing two is I was going to try and understand a little bit about the medical situation such that if I needed to be able to help um, more directly medically, if I had encountered, say, that truck on flipped over in the water, what would I be able to do? So um, uh, decided to go in and get some basic medical training and start learning about the communications options. So kind of take them in sequence. I think the, the relatively easier one is the EMS uh, line. So uh, had the benefit of, of uh, taking a couple of tours, backcountry tours last year. And uh, my wife being who she is, I love her dearly, but she said, if you're going to be, you know, 21 days by helicopter, you know, going into the backcountry 30 miles from any sort of cell signal at all, um, you're going to have some basic <laughs> medical training. Uh, so she, she's, she's wise like that. And, um, I have learned to listen to that feedback when it comes as directly as it came. So, um, I went and enrolled in the Nor in the Knowles woofer course and took the, uh, took the woofer course, the wilderness first responder class with Knowles. And I got to say my, my unfiltered advice for every nature photographer, especially if you run workshops is to go through the woofer. It is a fantastic class, especially the one facilitated by Knowles. I know that um, that there are other groups that that uh, that give out that certification. I can't speak personally to the others, but I, I've heard of other good experiences. But just going and getting going through the wilderness first responder at the, as a base level, you get basic life support, you get um, basic backcountry uh, patient assessments. Uh, and some general skills around um, preventative uh, medicine and 
uh, packaging of injuries and things like that. I think they're just super important skills for everybody who spends any time in the backcountry to have, especially if you are leading groups. Um, and then it also, you also get a basic education as to what types of tools you would want to carry with you. You get an understanding of, you know, what, what would I do if somebody had a, uh, somebody went into cardiac arrest in front of me, what would I do? Would I know how to help them? And if I were, if I were two miles, two miles down trail, or if I were 10 miles down trail, or if I were, um, an hour, an hour from, um, from, from definitive care by helicopter, how would I make sure that my client survived to the best of my ability? You know, those are questions I think we should all ask each other, but just for oneself, um, you know, I'll, I'll talk about a couple of examples uh, beyond that here in a second. So starting to think through those questions, you learn how you learn to think through what those scenarios might be and get some good background as to how you can, um, both help yourself and help, uh, clients and other people in the, in the wilderness by going through that class. So I strongly recommend that any, everybody go through that. And at the very minimum, you go, go do the four hour, uh, American heart association CPR class. Just if I see somebody, um, fall on the ground and is in cardiac arrest, the likelihood is, is that there's not an ambulance is not going to be able to help them if there isn't somebody near them that needs C- that, that doesn't yeah. know CPR. So the, the first line of defense in those things is just knowing basic life support. You know, if somebody has an arterial bleed, somebody cuts themselves in the wrong place, um, the, the difference could be just the, just the basic skills that you would learn in a BLS class. So we should all go do that in my never to be humble opinion. So, um, yeah, I totally agree. I, I took a wilderness first aid class as part of a job I had to take it, but this is like 1999, 2000. So I, I, you know, I probably only remember 25% of it at this point, you know? Yeah. And, <laughs> and, and, and so just going, going through the, the next level of the wilderness first aid and going through the first responder and then investigating what it would take to go to the next level. So I was interested enough and, 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 and gratified enough by what I learned in the, in the woofer class to go and say, well, it's not a lot more investment, um, for me to get certified as an EMT. And Knowles has a great program where if you go and you become a, a, a nationally certified EMT and get on the EMT registry, they will, they will grandfather you. They will, they will essentially grant you the certification of wilderness EMT in their program. So, um, last year I w- just, I went through and said, okay, I want to now understand. I got kind of the back, backcountry first responder piece. That's super interesting, but since I had been through the woofer class, there had been three individual times where I was front country. I was like in the city and rolled up to a, an accident. There was a, I was, I was right there when an elderly couple got T-boned in the middle of Boise. And, you know, we, the instructor in the woofer class was super candid with us and he just a great dude. Um, he runs a, a, um, he runs a, a, a medical training class that specializes in swift water rescue. So he's got mm-hmm, these really mm-hmm. specialized skills. Um, and he's like, look, you live in Idaho. You, most of the time, if you're driving outside the city, you're going to be the only one that can help. So just pull over and stop, just help people. That's the best advice I could give. And that just resonated with me. Um, so since I took the woofer, there had been several instances, including this one example that I just mentioned, where I was literally first on scene, 
um, to do an assessment of a, an elderly couple that had just gotten T-boned, airbags deployed. You know, woman's got a broken arm. She's holding it in her head. And there are there are bystanders that are trying to pull her out of the car, <laughs> even though her she had violently hit her head into the, into the deployed airbag and she was bleeding profusely from her face. Like that is not, you should not be pulling the patient out of the car <laughs> when, as we say, there's a mechanism of injury that is positive for spine. Like you could have a pot, you could have a spinal injury and you should not be pulling the patient out of the car. Right. So, um, I was able to stop that and, and, but then realized, you know, there's some other front country skills, like how to interact with the MS agency locally and how to package people and, 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 uh, work with the local crews, um, for ambulance transport and that next level of, of, um, pre-hospital care that I wanted to know more about. And so, um, there was a local, a local class that, um, I was able to take, it was a blended class, which worked with my work schedule. Um, I travel all the time for work. Um, and so it couldn't really do something that had regular local classroom hours. So I did the online component for the book work and then uh, was able to work in the, the practical um, pieces on a different schedule and, you know, ultimately took the, the, um, the, the practical, ex the practical exam and the online exam for the, to get on the national registry. So became a certified EMT, got the wilderness EMT and, and again, there've been any number of times where I've been lucky to have been able to use those skills since then. A couple of weeks ago, um, they asked for anybody with medical training on a flight that I was taking from Seattle to Cincinnati. And there was a police officer that had, um, what we believe now is natrial fibrillation passed out cold in the, on the aircraft was non-responsive. Um, we're able to help her get her oxygen and, and safely get her on the ground so that the EMTs, the paramedics could pick her up and take her to the hospital when we landed. Um, you know, those are just super fulfilling types of experiences. And, uh, yeah. if you, if we've ever met and we know each other well, you'll know that I don't, I don't like feeling helpless in those types of situations. I like to be one that can offer support and help directly. And this is just a way that I could do that. So that's where the EMS arc came from. And it started with my wife admonishing me to not be useless in the, <laughs> it, not be useless if I was going to be alone in the back country. Well, so, it sounds like it was kind of driven by that experience you had with the, the, the woman and the child, um, on the side of the road. Like, did you ever find out? What happened to them? No, I, I actually never found out. I investigated. Um, I called and um, I, I couldn't get any further information. They when yeah. when the deputies when the deputies arrived, they were gone. So I can I'm assuming that what she thought was going to happen, which is that the boyfriend that she had just gotten in the fight with, um, felt badly about abandoning them on the side of the road and came back and picked them up at some point shortly thereafter. I want to think that that was what happened. Um, right but I honestly can't tell you exactly how that turned out. Yeah. Gosh. Yeah. It's amazing to me. Um, I, <laughs> I think I even think about myself, like I climb a ton of mountains and by myself a lot of times. And I think about like so many times I could have, you know, you step on one rock the wrong way and you could be up there for two, three days by yourself. And it's like, what are you going to do? <laughs> no, that's exactly right. And, and you know, sometimes there's only so much that you can prepare for, right? You can't, you can't carry a, you can't carry a portable helicopter with you to airlift yourself <laughs> off a mountain. You run into that type of trouble, but you can, and this is kind of the segue into the next piece, which is you can understand how you would communicate for help properly if you had to do that. So, um, and this is the, you know, the classic, um, you know, two, two is one and one is none. Um, 
So I started now investigating communications wise, you know, what, what types of communications mechanisms would I be able to invoke if I ran into a similar situation? And those, those in, again, in typical backcountry scenarios, there's are potentially different answers and questions. You know, many of us, and I had a spot device and I still rely on it. It's still, it's a great device. Don't get me wrong. And, and it is absolutely a true story that, that many of us in the landscape photography community know someone who has either know somebody directly whose life has been saved by a spot device or know somebody who knows somebody. I mean, there, it, it doesn't take long, doesn't take too many degrees of separation to find somebody who is in that spot. Um, pardon the pun. But there, spot devices are not the only answer every time either in that they do require a certain type of communication, which isn't always available no matter where you are. And, you know, again, a spot device would not have been in any way useful really for that particular scenario. Because by the time all of the machinery to respond in, in, in those situations was spun up, um, I would have been able to go in and get help first person myself. Right. right. So good, good examples of this. Um, so stepping back a bit, I, I started researching, okay, what are the different mechanisms depending on these types of terrain and, and what are the available options? And I, I, I got quickly to the fact that in the state of Idaho, um, they, they have solved this problem in the Idaho EMS world. Um, emerging emergency medical services, the state operates a statewide um, radio repeater mm-hmm. network that if you know how to interact with it can be helpful because that's how with all of the really towering terrain and, and deep canyons, um, you, you can't, there's no cell service. We, we establish there's no cell towers, but there's also no satellite capability either. You don't, you'll, you won't have any satellite signal to speak of. Um, you can get sometimes GPS positioning, but you can't interact with Iridium or any other satellite networks reliably. So even sending text messages, if you, if you have a, a device that is satellite capable for sending text messages, those are not super useful, but what is almost universally available, no matter where you are, is the ability to use just plain old traditional uh, radio technology. And so this is where I started getting really interested in, in amateur radio and the intersection between amateur radio and public safety radio. So, um, the, what I, what I came to found, what to find is that if I had been in that spot with that, um, with that young woman and that boy and had an amateur radio of just really basic power, a traditional, um, vehicle mounted radio, I would have been able to fairly quickly and easily raise any number of radio operators, um, personal radio operators, hams, amateur radio. So ham radio, um, is, uh, when you, when people talk about hams, they're talking about amateur radio operators. It's the same hobby that, you know, you, we, we may have all seen in movies back, um, in early parts of the 20th century. Um, and it's just this community of, of millions of, uh, people who are interested in just talking to each other, um, using specific frequencies, uh, on amateur radios. If I had been in that spot within, with a straightforward amateur radio vehicle mounted in my car, I would have been able to talk to probably a dozen different people who were actively listening for somebody to call and either just randomly chat or if need be, ask for help. 
and they would have been able to pick up their landline and call the sheriff's department and get that moving at least in half an hour to 45 minutes before I was mm-hmm. able to on my own. So this is where I said, okay, I'm going to go in and I'm getting a license. Um, and amateur radio requires a, a basic license. Um, it's $15 and it's like you're taking the, the equivalent of a driver's license test. Um, it's good for 10 years. And once you have it, you get a call sign and you can interact legally um, at really high power um, with um, some pretty cool equipment. And I can talk more about what that looks like here in a bit. Um, oh, before you do that, I want to know what's your, call, what's your call sign? My call sign is Kilo 5 Papa Sierra November, K5PSN. All right. <laughs> yeah. How did you come to, uh, did they assign that to you or did you get to pick it at all? They actually assigned me a different one. Um, and I went, you, you can, you can apply for what's called a vanity call. So I actually applied for a vanity call. Um, there were a few reasons for it. Um, there, um, the, the letters PSN have some personal significance for me because they're, uh-huh. they're my, my initials and my wife's initials. Um, and then the first, the first part K five, that is the, um, five is the, is the number code for the part of the U S that is, um, includes New Mexico, which is, I'm a native from, of New Mexico. <laughs> and, um, so I moved around so much in my life. I didn't, I, the only, the only place I really have a home attachment to, um, even as long as I lived in Idaho is, is New Mexico. So I'll always be a, a native New Mexican. And so K5 made sense for me. Nice. So K5 PSN is my call sign and I'll, I'll stick with that one. Um, I, I, I could probably get a, get another one that's shorter when I get more experience to get another level of license, but I'll just stick with that one for a while. <laughs> right on. So yeah, let's talk about the equipment because um, you know when you were first telling me about this, I was like, "Oh, that sounds like something I really could use on my backpacking trips." But then I'm like, "I wonder, like, how much does this thing weigh? Like, how long do the batteries last? Like, uh, give us some uh, give us some details, man." Sure. So um, you mentioned earlier, and I do want to. Uh, full disclosure, if the passion on this topic doesn't completely come through to other other photographers who are listening to this, I am a per- I'm on a personal mission to get all of you guys licensed. Um, <laughs> and, and, and hopefully I will I will give you my best sales pitch for why this should be true. So I've already started with what the basic barrier entry is, which is it's a $15 license and everybody's like, I don't want to sit for this really complicated, crazy test. You know, I, I hated science or engineering when I was in school. I don't want to do that. It's, it's not that complicated a test. So the test involves, um, it's a 50 question test. You've only got to get 35 of them right. And literally the entire question pool is in the study guide. <laughs> so you... You can go through and memorize all the answers, and it's per- it's an it's an open book test. Um, it's closed book at the time, but you can go and memorize all the all the questions in the question pool, and it's not that hard a test to take. So, fifteen bucks, two hours of your day, it'll be worth it. I promise. Okay, so that part. Let's talk about the equipment. So, one of the questions that people ask, and and as many photographers are also um, overlap into the overlanding community. Yes. You know, one of the other questions that we get along is why, you know, everybody, all my overlanding buddies all use CB or they all use the, you know, the blister pack radios or, mm-hmm. or, or the, um, the GMRS radios, you know, the FRS stuff, you know, why don't I, why don't I just do that? Cause it's looks super cheap and I don't need a license. Well, you actually do need a license for GMRS, but you don't need it for CB. So let's just, let's just compare to CB for a second. So the the most powerful CB radio that you can buy right now, if you went to go to you know, you you look for, um, and pull 
get a reputable CB radio that you would normally put into your Jeep or, uh, you know, Toyota. I, I'm a Toyota guy. Me too. The most, the most, uh, ex- the, the feature, the most feature packed, um, version that you could buy for CB, um, is about 260, 270 bucks and is a four watt radio. So, um, without getting too super technical, you know, the, the amount of, the amount of Watts is just kind of like speakers, the, the higher the wattage, the more power you can output in terms of how far you can get that signal. So it is, it's not completely linear, but for the purposes of this discussion, you know, if I've got a four watt radio, um, I can get out so far. If I've got a 40 watt radio, I can get out a lot farther, you know, an order of magnitude farther. Uh, which means if I'm line of sight, if I'm sitting on the playa or if I'm sitting on the top of a mountain, um, you know, 10 times the wattage, I'm going to get a long way, hundreds of miles, maybe, maybe a hundred miles as opposed to dozens of, you know, a dozen miles. That's a, that's a big difference, even clear line of sight at high altitude. Mm-hmm. Um, and then when you're talking, when you're talking about driving through in obstacles, like, you know, when we're going and we're driving through fire roads and mountains in mountain areas where you're in canyons and things like that. The amount of power that you have in, in your radio that you can use legally is super important. Um, and the wavelength that you're, that you're tuning on is also super important. So there are two disadvantages to CB for what we do. Um, first of all, because it's unlicensed, the amount of power that you can buy in a radio is only about four watts. Well, in my amateur radio, just in the handheld that I carry in my, in my normal backpack day to day, I have a five watt radio that I carry it's handheld. So it's 25% more powerful than the most powerful CB that I could put in my truck <laughs> just walking around. And the, and the only thing I need in order to use that is my, is my basic amateur license, my amateur radio license. So that's just a place to start. <laughs> right now. So there's these other technologies like the FRS, which is those blister pack radios that you could get at Walmart or REI or whatever. So, you know, you can get a couple of those radios for a hundred bucks and they're pretty good quality in the sense that you can drop them in the water and they're not going to, they're, they're not going to um, cause you a problem, but without a license with those radios, those are usually only a half a watt. So you're really not able to talk over Hills. You're not, you have to stay relatively line of sight in order to, to have a conversation with somebody. And that's not a, it's not really an emergency communication tool. Um, and B you don't, it's not really all that flexible. It's really good for kind of around the campsite. If you're talking, if you don't want to shout, shout and wake everybody else right. up at the campground, but it's not really useful for beyond that. Right. Right. So, so let's, let's, uh, take, um, you know, many, many of our, our, our collective friends are couples. So imagine I'm, I'm one of, one of the many, many couples that we can all name where I've got one person that's, that's back on the, in the RV and the other one is out in the field shooting on any given day. So, Imagine now I've got a 50 watt radio that is in, in the RV, which is the normal amount of power you get with a licensed, um, amateur radio on VHF or UHF 50 watts. So that's already 10 times more powerful than the one that I carry in my bag. And it's which, and that one I got in my bag is also 25% more powerful than the most powerful CB radio that I've got in my truck. (laughs) So there's, so just starting with that and then. I can go out in the field with one of the handheld radios, or if I've got another vehicle and I can have a conversation between these two radios, um, that 
is you know 50 watts or uh, up to 80 watts so and and if i'm at 80 watts i'm now 20 times more powerful than cb and i'm at or i'm at the same cost price point or i'm lower so i would just ask the wow. obvious question if all we're talking about is sitting down and taking a test and paying $15 just just that fact alone would want would cause me as a reasonably technical person to say yeah it makes much more sense that i would i would just get this more powerful radio because it just has more options and then that's point to point with with amateur radio we have these tens of thousands of repeater towers that are all over the country and indeed all over the world where you can just download an app on your phone and say, okay, here's the local amateur repeater. And if I've got a handheld radio and I can talk to the repeater, the repeater will actually amplify that signal and push it out at the repeater's, um, at the repeater's power level. So I'm now all of a sudden having a conversation, not just point to point, at what at the at the level of power of my own radio i might be having a conversation with somebody who's 100 miles away and on the other side of the mountain from me because the repeater tower is on the top of the mountain receiving my signal amplifying it and pushing it out to uh, in a 360 degree pattern everywhere that the repeater at the top of the mountain can see line of sight yeah, you were you were showing me a video where you were talking to a guy in like Australia or something. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. So that we're that that's a slightly different um, a slightly different thing. But let let me um, let me come back to that in a bit if we could. Yeah. So sure. what we're talking about here is just the what we call the technician level for amateur radio. It's just the very first entry level. Um, the very first license that you that you get. So in, in amateur radio, you have these different levels of what they call privileges. So different different frequencies that you can speak on, that you can talk on, transmit on, um, based on your level of license. So everything I've described to this group so far has been just this this basic amateur level. You know, one test, fifteen bucks, you're done. Ten years, you're good. And so all these capabilities I'm describing are, are there. Um, mm -hmm. There are some other capabilities that for what we do are also I th also really interesting um, and exciting, I think, over what some of some of the alternatives are. So, um, for example, the radio, I, I'm a fan of Yesu radios. Um, there are other manufacturers that are kind of the big three are Yesu, Icom, and Kenwood. Um, I'm a Yesu guy, but it's the same thing as saying I'm a Toyota guy or I'm a Jeep guy or I'm a Chevy guy, right? Yeah. Um, it's, it's, it's just kind of that. Um, one of the things about Yesu radios that I really like, um, and there are some equivalent features of, of the other systems, but uh, they have this capability where you can actually do a digital connection between the two radios. And as part of that digital signal, if you're the, the, some of the radios have GPS, um, radio, they have GPS capability built in. So imagine now, um, I'm in my vehicle and, and my wife and I do this, if I'm in my vehicle driving around and I've got my Yesu mobile mounted radio in my truck and, um, and she's got a handheld, which also has a little GPS in it and has this capability. Not only am I talking to her, um, using this free, um, this free wavelength, uh, this, this free bandwidth, but I'm also connecting to her using a digital signal, which is really high quality voice. So we're having a, a digital quality voice conversation between these two radios that's totally free apart from the licenses and just buying the hardware. 
and I, I can also see not only where she is, I've got I've got her relative distance from me because both I, my radio knows where it is and her radio knows where she is. I know exactly how far away she is from me and I know her bearing. So I can see not only how far she is from me, but I can, I can drive my truck directly to her. So now imagine we're in, we're all photographers. We love each other. We're in groups and we lose one of our people. Right. The, our, we can, it's just by punching a button before we leave, each of us just sets up our radios will all just send out these little beacons and just keep track of each other. And all of a sudden one of us falls off the side of a cliff. I'll know not only where their radio is, but I know how far it is and I can walk straight. I can have, I can have my radio walk me right to that person. Wow. Why, why don't they use that for like avalanche recovery and stuff like that? It seems like it's a much better technology than like the beacons and stuff. Yeah. So you, you're kind of at the limit of what, you know, if you're under 20 feet of snow, it's less useful, but certainly for, um, uh, right, somebody, right. <laughs> somebody tumbles down and, but, but if somebody tumbles into a Canyon and you can't see them because, you know, they're not wearing enough orange or they're behind a rock or something, you know, that could be the difference between getting to them quickly or not. Right. And, right. um, you know, that's, now we go back into the, well, what happens if they have, if they've broken a leg and they've got a femoral artery bleed and stuff like that, you know, I want to get to them quick. So, um, you know, these are, but these are all just, you know, in addition to being potential safety things, they're good conveniences. I mean, if we can, in, I think a lot about how, you know, when I've been out with buddies, just, you know, where the heck are you, man? <laughs> oh, yeah. I know exactly where you are. You're over there. And I don't have to, I don't have to walk, you know, a half mile back to camp just to tell you that, um, I, I ran out of battery and I want you to bring me a battery. Right. right? Or like, dude, you should come see this composition. <laughs> uh, dude, like the light, the light over here is going crazy. Get, right. get, get, get the tent and get up here. Right. Right. <laughs> you can, it, it's those types of conversations that we can have with each other. And yeah, it's not just safety. It's not it like also has all of those safety benefits. Right. 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 And you know, like, you, you go back into places like Stanley, Idaho, where, you know, you put a mountain between you and town and there's no cell signal in, in either location. It can be as basic as, oh crap, I forgot to tell you to buy eggs, buy eggs. Right. And there's a, <laughs> there's a repeat, there's a repeater close enough by where the repeater will bounce your signal off and get it clean, get it clearly into town. And that's the only other option you would have to communicate with anybody else in your group. So how is the how are those frequencies monitored in terms of um, people having licenses or not having licenses be using, using the technology? Well, technically speaking, in order to use those amateur frequencies, um, you have to have an amateur license. Right, um, right. So the question is, how is it enforced? Yeah, there's technically, kind of... technically an enforcement arm of the FCC <laughs> that's supposed to be listening in and keeping people on point. Huh. Um, generally speaking, if you've gone through the trouble of buying a radio and you're talking um, the, the, the group, you know, the community is pretty good at self-policing. Uh -huh. Like if some, you know, random guy, random person gets on and just starts making a mess they, that, uh, they generally do a pretty good job of shouting that person down or at least educating them on why they should go and do this things differently. I mean, there are communications protocols that they have to follow. Uh -huh. Um, it's pretty obvious when somebody jumps on and they is, don't isn't know what licensed. they're doing. <laughs> yeah. It's, it's pretty obvious when that happens. Um, and, and, you know, the community is so welcoming that generally the, the, generally the approach is, is 
here, let me tell you what you need to go do. And a lot of people are like, oh, I didn't, I didn't realize that. Thanks for the update. You know, how can I learn more? Well, come to the, come to the club meeting or go to our website and buy this, buy this guide, buy this book, hook up with Fred because he loves to help people through the testing process. And the first, the, the next exam test is the first Saturday of the month. Just show up with your fifth, with a, with a 10 and a five. And, and uh, you, if you're reasonably, reasonably intelligent person, you'll pass the first time. Nice. So, so that's how that normally works. How, how heavy are those handheld held units that have the GPS capabilities? About the same as you'd expect. I mean, my, my radio is not meaningfully more heavy than any one, any of the little uh, Motorola blister pack radios that you'd buy at REI for the same purpose. Wow. Okay. The, the, you know, and, and, you know, the, the batteries, like the, the, the batteries are rechargeable. So, and, and the radios, the, the decent, uh, the ones are, uh, are well-constructed. I've got a couple of them that are both submersible. Uh, one's got a touch screen. So uh, what's the, and they're different, they're different levels invested in as well. Yeah, I was going to say like, kind of what is the price range on some of that stuff? If people are interested in getting started. So, um, I'm going to, I'm going to expose a bias here for those of you <laughs> who might, who might've been investing, Sorry, who might've been investing. In Canon. Yeah. So there's a, there's a collection, there's a collection of radios that you can buy off of Amazon that are made by a handful of manufacturers. Um, most of them are made in China, like Bofang and, and, and a couple of those. There are a lot, a lot of amateur radio folks that love those little, um, uh, Chinese radios and, um, there's a, I am a bias against those just because there's some things about them that make them unreliable for the things that we want to do, uh-huh. but they are incredibly inexpensive. Like you can get, you can get a, um, you can get a radio off Amazon. If you get a license, you can use it and it will work in most situations really well for 35, 40 bucks. Wow. Seriously. Um, the problem is, is that they do have some reliability issues, number one, but also they have some technical things that make them unreliable in situations where you might want to have reliability. So I personally would not recommend any of those. What I would recommend is buy a radio that's one of those three brands. So Yesu, Kenwood, or ICOM. And um, I'm very happy if anybody listening wants to reach out to me um, on Facebook or directly by email, very happy to help coach them through this. It's kind of a, it's an ethic within the hobby to be ready to help people get into the hobby and get them through the basics. So it's part of why I'm doing this is because it's, it's a, it's a give to get type of, of arrangement that we all make with each other when you get in it. Um, very similar to how photography works in my experience, which is great. Um, mm-hmm. but so I, you could get, you can get a very high quality, um, a brand new, uh, amateur radio that's got all the key capabilities in it for about a hundred and uh, between a hundred and hundred and twenty dollars. Nice. Um, that'll be highly reliable. Will be lightweight. Will be small, smaller even than a than what you could get at REI, um, and have battery life that will last you, you know, a, a day to two on a hike. And then you buy a spare battery, and you'll it'll get you through a three to four day um, at, at three to four day adventure. And there are actually, you know, obviously, there are enough people who who use radios for this purpose, that there's actually something called a wilderness protocol for radio communications, where they're, um, at the, at the top of every, at the top of every handful of hours, you turn on the radio and listen for five minutes. (laughs) So you look at your watch, you, so when you're, when, when others in the backcountry and you're trying to save battery, 
there's a protocol where, you know, at the, at the top of the hour or every, every third hour, um, based on GMT, you'll turn your radio on at the, at the t- exactly at the top of the hour, listen for five minutes on a specific frequency. And then if you need your conserve your battery, you turn the radio back off and you do the same thing. <laughs> like- so I've got an alarm, I've got alarms set on my, on my phone and, um, and on my watch to go to, you know, right at the top of the hour. So if I'm, if I'm out there, if there happens to be somebody else who needs help, who happens to be a radio operator in those five minutes, hopefully I'll learn about That's it. That's like the walking dead. <laughs> like I remember yeah. season one of the walking dead where he was like, he gave that guy his other radio and he's like, uh, every day at 5am yep. I'm going to turn my radio on that's, 10 minutes. <laughs> that's, that's a flavor of the wilderness. That makes a lot of sure. sense though. And so, yeah. And so there's, there's all these things that you learn about in, in the radio community that people have been doing for decades that have just been happening. And, um, and so there, are, and then the next level of that is, is that there are organized groups. So now I'm going to you know step away from photography a bit and we can talk about, um, actual service. So, um, and I can, I can share this, share this, uh, link with you for the, for the listeners, um, to follow up if they want, but there was a period of time after, um, hurricane Maria in Puerto Rico where amateur radio operators were the only mechanism of communication on mm-hmm. the whole Island. So a little, little known fact, um, but a lot of us were following this very closely. It was covered by CNN, and a lot of major n- news outlets um, Fake news. for the first time in the history of the, <laughs> I'm just kidding. <laughs> um, in the, for the first time in the history of the, in the hundred plus year history of the American Red Cross, um, they invoked an, a partnership that had been longstanding with um, the amateur radio relay league, the ARRL. ARRL has been back, has been going, I can't remember when they got kicked off, honestly, but it's, you know, call it 1920. I mean, you know, close, close to the, to the origination of, of hobby radio uh, after the invention of the technology back in the early 20th century. So long, call it, call it a hundred years ago. These two organizations have both existed kind of side by side. They have had an informal partnership where Hey, if we really needed emergency communications in, and you were the last line of defense, we're going to call you guys up. And that actually happened wow. after hurricane Maria, they, the red cross called the AWRL and, and invoked an organization that I'm actually a part of, um, called the amateur radio emergency huh. service of Aries. And it's a, it's a group like in Idaho, there's a chapter that meets, um, the first Thursday of every month and you get together and you talk about standard emergency communications protocols. Um, there you, you go through, you can, you can go through a formal certification if you want. Um, you, you, you basically get the, um, the FEMA training, the, the government training on standardized communications, standardized disaster response organization, Um, and you can be a member of the group and, um, the way that they practice is they'll do, um, communication, organized communications for events. So if there's like a public event and they need to just do communications coordination, um, like a, a great example is, um, in Boise, there was an air show that required, that was on Gowan field, the air force base in Boise air national guard base. So the Aries group that I was a member of, we all handled the parking lot communications and coordination 
in conjunction with the military, just to the basic logistics of getting thousands of people on and off base to watch this air show. Yeah. Well, it's kind of a, it's not the, not a super exciting way to spend a Saturday. You're doing radio communications, just giving updates on, on the situations with parking lots, but that wasn't the purpose. The purpose was to practice right. the, the, the organization around doing net control and communicating around a centralized network and passing messages back and forth and making sure that that was handled efficiently and gaining practice using that in the event there really was a disaster, really was an emergency event that had a large scale because that's the group that gets called up to support, in this case, the Idaho Emergency Operations Center. Hmm. So the meet, the meetings for the ARIES group are in the Idaho Emergency Operations Center and a member of the group is the manager over the, um, over the Idaho EOC. That's awesome, man. Yeah. And, I, uh, actually was, um, in two of my previous jobs, I was responsible for coordinating all the emergency preparedness and response, uh, for, you know, a, a large community health center, like in case of disasters mm-hmm. and things like that. So I'm a little bit familiar with, um, you know, like, all of the, you know, basic emergency response type stuff that you have to do through FEMA and stuff like that. But exactly. So you, 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 in that role, you probably had a plan section and you probably had a liaison officer. And one of the liaisons was into the Aries group that was almost certainly surrounding that area of, of operation That's cool. for, uh, huh. so it was all out there. So kind of going back to this really cool story about Puerto Rico, obviously not cool that that a lot of people were in right. really serious distress after the hurricane. That's not the cool part. Um, the cool part was that the Red Cross had the ability to call uh, the ARRL and call up Aries. They said, give me 50 of your most experienced radio operators and their go kits, and we will put them on aircraft and we will put them on the ground in San Juan <laughs> oh, and we will fly them. We will fly them end to end in uh, on the island, and it, within within uh, within hours, they had identified all those people. They had pulled their go bags. They had gotten on aircraft and were being flown to Puerto Rico. And they actually set up the first um, the first communication networks using these formal protocols that had been practiced and practiced and practiced. Um, and they established emergency communications back for the island, like welfare checks, you know, people giving uh, welfare updates, like where's my relative? Right. Here's your relative. Here's their current state. Hey, I need, I need this food aid here. I need this medical aid here. Right. And they were, they were days ahead of the military. Oh, I'm sure. No doubt. Down there. And so Red Cross was first down there. FEMA was down there. Uh, and then these guys were, were down there and, and it was, it's just a really incredible story. And these are normal, these are normal hobbyist people who practice their skills by talking to each other. Now this type, this, this is where we get into these other, other levels of licensure that we talked about. So in order to use this type of radio equipment, which is longer distance point to point, this is what you would consider the shortwave types of things. So if you, for those of you who've seen the movie Contact, where you have the the the, um, yeah. the young Jodie Foster character, she's calling CQ CQ and listening for responses. Um, that's that's the radio hobby, but it's using the what's uh, called the HF different frequencies for those types of things. You need a, you need a, a slightly higher class of license. Just take another test; it's another fifteen bucks. Um, I did it the next month. It's not hard, um, but uh, this is where. I, I find it's really other interesting parts of the hobby. So setting aside everything we've talked about so far, I have a different radio in my truck 
that has a different antenna, um, uses different frequencies, use a different license to communicate on it, but it's the same general protocol. And this is, this is really interesting to me. And this, this is the hobby part. I can drive up to a mountain, to a, a, a tall hill, you know, Boise is what, 2,600 feet in altitude normally. I can drive to 3,300 feet and get a good line of sight for you know, 50 miles or so. The radio waves in this other radio, it's a, it's the same size. It's a hundred Watts, um, costs about 450, 500 bucks. Um, and the antennas I have cost me $30 mounted to my truck. Yeah. I had a, I had a conversation. I, I shared with you the video, happy to make it available. It's on my face, on my personal Facebook page, having a conversation with a guy in New Zealand. Yeah. That's what it was. Yeah. Point to point. 7,138 miles away. <laughs> That's wild, man. It was like, it was what I thought was super interesting about that is that there was really no lag. No, it, I mean, it's all speed light. So yeah. I mean, it's, if, if the conditions see the, the issue you get into here, just kind of like light, you, you light going through smoky valleys. If you when the waves go up into the ionosphere and they bounce around and those, those, the quality of that propagation is, is, um, you know, scientifically pretty interesting for those of you who are interested, interested in astrophysics. Um, I, I don't, I'm not that interested enough to really know too much about it other than propagation is good today or it's not good today. Um, and we're in a lull, um, because it's all a lot driven based on solar activity. So the, for the same type of activity that drives really incredible auroras for us photographers, that same type of activity, if there's really high K values for auroras, there's also really good propagation for long distance radio communications. Oh yeah, that I guess that makes sense. Because because the, the, the activity the activity goes up the the radio waves go up in the ionosphere they get captured they bounce down and they can propagate in these layers of the ionosphere long distances before they come back down and people can pick them up with relatively simple antennas. So I'm sitting on a hilltop that's ten miles away from my house. It's at thirty three hundred feet. I've got my radio tuned to a specific frequency on um, twenty meters. I guess is the you know it's the fourteen megahertz band. And just tuning around and there's this conversation going on between a guy in New Zealand and a guy in Wisconsin. And they, you know, there's this, there's this very friendly atmosphere. Nobody it's, it's, Hey, how are you doing today? Here's my call sign. Here's your call sign. Here's your signal report. It's I'm hearing you clearly. Here's really strong signal. And then, you know, talk about just basic things. What's your name? You know, what's going on in your world today? What's the weather like where you are? You know, educate me. It's kind of like, you know, being a, being a voice pen pal, if you will. Mm-hmm. Yeah. But it's all goodwill based, right? It's, you know, I, let's, let's learn a little bit about each other and then, you know what, let's just, let's wind this down and we'll go to the next person and yeah. somebody will kind of camp on a frequency and have conversations. And so this guy happens to be in a, he's a retiree in, in New Zealand. He's sitting on a beach. He's got this RV that he's pulled to the, pulled to the coast. He's got a antenna that he pulled up and and he points to North America after, you know, in the middle of the afternoon, his time. And we have a conversation over 7,000 miles. That's crazy. That's so cool. Yeah, it really is cool. And uh, that's the technology that was used uh, in the Puerto Rico response. Right. So you, right. Set, you send these operators who have built these skills, having these types of conversations, you, you drop them in a place with portable power and, and portable radio equipment like this with decent 
high quality portable antennas and the these folks they know how to erect a, an antenna system that can properly communicate because that's not a trivial task it's part of the hobby is learning how to do that properly put your set your radio up and you get you just getting these rhythms okay i'm going to start passaging formal messages talking about everything from this person's got dysentery and we and we're running out of water and i really need some help over here to hey so and so just wandered in out of the out of the hillside uh, from a hillside you probably didn't know where they were before right now so i'm going to report to you that they are self safe and sound and please let their family know man so i'm i'm curious um given that you've kind of been a champion of this technology and been using it on your photography adventures. Do you have any um, stories about how it's um, like the practical applications of how you've used it to maybe from more of a fun way or, or practical applications in terms of like helping, you know, someone that's in medical having a medical issue? Yeah. So a couple of things. Um, so on the, on the, on the medical side, there have been a couple of times in the last few months where it's definitely come in handy. So, um, you know, I mentioned that there's a statewide radio network. They use fun, they meet the public safety agencies use by design. The FCC gives them different frequencies, mm -hmm. but what you can do is, you know, the, the radios, you can, you can properly modify them so that they, for safety, for, um, compliance reasons, they're out of the box restricted to the frequencies that you're licensed for. So amateur radios can only normally broadcast, they can only, only normally transmit on frequencies that are designed for amateur radio communications and the people that have those types of licenses. But for folks like myself, um, and we haven't talked about search and rescue. Um, like I use the, I use my personal amateur radios for search and rescue. I'm a member of the Idaho mountain search and rescue unit. Mm -hmm. So, um, like I use my, my radio is, is the same level of quality that I would get if I were to be issued a radio on a mission mm -hmm. for search and rescue. But I happen to, I have had it modified so I can use it for both purposes. And that's totally appropriate in, in an actual emergency. Mm -hmm. So they're all, basically with respect to licenses and legality, like all bets are off if you if it's a legitimate emergency. So the FCC says if you're in an emergency, talk however you need to talk in order to get yourself some help. Mm -hmm. That's kind of the way mm -hmm. it works. Or if you're a responder, if you're an EMT, or if you're a police officer, or, uh, you're on an e you're on a search and rescue mission, you can you can talk you using whether whatever talk technology is available. It all counts. Yeah. So I use my own personal radios for that. Uh, but there have been times where I've been coming back, like just camping with my family. Uh, a few weeks ago, there was a raft in the, in the South Fork of the Payette river. There was a raft that was flipped over and all we saw was the flipping over the raft. And I could not see where I was, where I was, where any of the, any of the, the people in the raft were, mm -hmm. I just knew that the raft was flipped over in whitewater right. and this is class, class three stuff. So it was pretty, pretty vigorous froth down there. Yeah. So the, the first thing. The first thing I knew was I knew enough that I am not a swift water rescue guy <laughs> and I'm not swimming out there. I just don't have the skills. Right. So I immediately picked up the radio and I got on the phone. I, I got, I got called, I called out to Statecom, which is the, um, the EMS agency and let somebody know that I saw a raft that was flipped over and we need to get swift water rescue rolling just in case. Well, it just so happened that about five minutes after that, um, we found the rafters they had they had swum down almost immediately and and gotten out of the water you know a, a couple hundred yards downstream you know down river but i didn't see that at the time so that's one thing um another thing that uh 
that uh, came up not too long ago um, was this, and this is not a medical emergency, but you know, somebody could be out there for a while. It, uh, more or less the same place that I told you the story about for the woman and mm-hmm. the boy within maybe 15 miles of that same spot. Um, there was a, a truck that blew an a- basically broke mm-hmm. an axle. And so they were, they, they were a full 30 miles from being able to walk anywhere. Um, it was starting to get dark. Um, not a lot of traffic coming by there. So it could have been a couple of hours before the next vehicle came by them where they were. And I was able to not call for emergency support because it wasn't an emergency, but, um, I was able to use my radio in my truck and use one of the local amateur repeaters to talk to another amateur, another ham and say, Hey, just, can you let Boise County Sheriff know that there's a vehicle that's disabled with a broken axle and they're not in a very safe part of the road. So have a deputy come out and put up flares and cones so they don't get rear ended where they are because I can drag them. I've got a winch. I can drag them off the road, but that's only going to get them so far because there's just not enough shoulder where they are. And so that, you know, it could have been one of those situations where another motorist rolled up and didn't have, doesn't have good lights. It's pitch black. They roll in right into the back of them. And now there's a really serious issue. So good news was able to immediately reach another ham who said, yep, I got it. I'm on the phone with them right now. Where exactly are you? I had my GPS in my truck. Um, my normal GPS that I carry with me in the backcountry gave them the GPS coordinates using the same protocol we use in SAR and Boise County rolled out, got a, got a deputy out there with their tow truck and they were able to get picked up and taken, taken back to town with a tow. No idea how long they would have been out there otherwise. So that it makes you feel good when you can do stuff like that. Yeah, I was going to say like, and you got to go home knowing that, uh, those people are in good hands. (laughs) Exactly right. That's exactly right. And then, and so, yes. So yeah, that, those are examples where it, it feels good to be able to help. Awesome, man. Well, I have, um, just two more questions for you. Okay. Uh, the, you know, the first one is, um, based on the name of the podcast, F stop, mm-hmm. collaborate and listen. Yeah. What advice do you have for other photographers? I got two pieces of advice. Um, the first one is, uh, the general piece, which I think you get probably get a lot, but you know, photography is supposed to be art. It's supposed to be fun. Um, try, just make, make your art and do your thing and, and, and be happy with what you creatively can, can put out there. Cause we're all going to enjoy it. It doesn't have to be, it doesn't have to be conformed to one direction or another. It's supposed to be creative. So let it be creative. So that's part one. Uh, and part two is, um, be, please be safe. And hopefully this discussion we've had has been helpful for others in learning how to be better about being safe because, a satellite phone is only going to get you so far some of the time. An amateur radio is only going to get you so far some of the time. Um, just have have multiple layers of safety because at the end of the day, we want to continue to enjoy your art a lot and we want you to get home safe when you leave. I'll take that advice to home with me this weekend when I climb, climb another mountain. <laughs> 
Awesome. Yeah. And, and anybody should feel free to reach out to me directly. I'd love to help. I mean, it's just, obviously it's super interesting for me and uh, anything I can do to give back. So many people who listen to your podcast have given me more advice and more guidance and uh, than I could possibly ever repay. And I'd love to be able to repay that a little bit by um, helping in this area and making sure that they're a little bit safer for their families. So reach out. Well, I'm guessing, I'm guessing that uh, especially people that do a lot more backcountry travel are going to be super curious about this because it sounds like um, it's a lot more reliable method of communication than most of us have. That's right. And and also, again, I don't want to underemphasize just, it's a lot of fun and also, and right. also <laughs> in, in, incredibly convenient. Like just how many, how many of us have gotten in, the, have gotten in five vehicles and gone out to a shoot? Yeah, right. Like, and then you're like, like oh, I wish I could tell them something. Yeah, boy. Like, pull over. Oh, it's cell service is, you know, now I'm in the park and I don't have cell service anymore. And how do I solve that right. problem? The answer is, is you all go to, you all go to one, four, six, five, two, and everybody talks to each other and, you know, all, let's all go over to this other frequency and, and, uh, we'll just have, have this fantastic conversation with each other and use the technology and, um, for, for fun and convenience, not just for emergencies. So there's that. Nice. Um, all right. So my last question is, um, who do you think would be interesting to hear on the podcast? I have gotten a, a lot of guidance from a lot of folks. I would really uh, love for you to hear from Joe Ross back. Uh, I think he'd be a great person to talk to. And um, uh, another person that I've um, spent some time in the field with who I think is a great a great guy and is an interesting, uh, has an interesting perspective on things would be Andrew Steptoe. Okay. Um, and then, uh, and then a third person who is just a, another great guy, um, in addition to other people who I know have been recommended for the podcast before, which I won't, I won't, uh, duplicate, but, uh, <laughs> uh, Mark Perella, I think is a, is a really interesting guy too. And, and really nice guy and has got a, a lot of talent too. So I, I talk to him, talk to any one of those guys, uh, start, start with Joe. Maybe we can, we, we can get him on cause he's been around the world and back again. And a lot of this has been doing a lot of great work for a long time. And, um, there's a, there's a lot of people who have some, have gifts on composition, but, um, I've learned a lot from Joe and, and his composition style. And he's, he's really gifted in that area in particular. And I'd love to hear him describe his, his approach to that to you guys. Cool. Well, and I'm thinking, um, I want to record um, some bonus material for our Patreon listeners, and I've got, I've got a couple of listener questions that we'll that we'll address over on Patreon for folks, and maybe do a little bit of storytelling while we're at it. All right. So, um, well, man, right. thank, thank you for so much for, uh, man. It's like I didn't get to talk, which is awesome because um, that means you got to talk about what you're passionate about. So I love the fact that you could talk for so long about this uh radio technology i'm really appreciate it dude hey no very happy to be on and and uh, thanks for the invitation it's really an honor to, to do this with you and and uh, again anybody who wants any any help on any of the ems stuff or any of the radio stuff just feel free to reach out i'm very happy to do it awesome thanks man well i don't know about you but uh, i really want to go get myself one of these radios and try it out I think it'd be fun a ton to take into the field with my friends and just play with it and, you know, have fun. Uh, thanks to Scotty for taking the time to visit with us. Um, it's This week's 
definitely check out the liner notes on my blog at mattpaintphotography.com. Uh, Scotty sent me a ton of information and links um, and some comments um, about selecting equipment that would work for your needs, and uh, I think it's super helpful. Uh, thanks to uh, everyone who's written a review about the podcast on iTunes. It's super helpful, um, and it helps people find the podcast. And, uh, you know, if you leave a five-star review, I might mention on the podcast. Just saying. Um, you know, I, I work hard every week to bring you the show, and um, I'm just really appreciative of all the support that people are providing on Patreon. Um, thanks to our newest patrons, Christopher Davis, uh, Phil Pogledich, uh, Matt Conti, Sam Ison, and Atanu B. Sorry if I messed your guys' names up, but uh, it's hard. <laughs> Um, if you want to drop me a line about the podcast, um, suggestions, ideas, anything, just reach out to me via my website, uh, mattpainphotography.com. Um, also look for me on social media, Twitter and Instagram as Matt Payne Photo, or on Facebook as Matt Payne Photography. Thanks for listening. <laughs>